You're listening to a CNA podcast. That is what freedom sounds like. Those voices, they belong to some of the 200 Ukrainian prisoners of war released by Russia in a swap on January the 3rd. The men are draped in their country's flag and they're singing their national anthem. It was one of the few bright spots of this two-year-long war. While life has gone on, the conflict grinds on. Two years have passed and it's taken a toll on soldiers and the Ukrainian psyche. So how do people even begin to live a normal life when war is raging at their doorstep? I'm Teresa Tang. In this episode of the CNA Correspondent Podcast, we find out with Lim Yun-suk. Hey, Yun-suk. Hello. Hi, Teresa. Yun-suk, we typically talk to you about South Korea, of course, a country that's technically still at war, though it is a war without direct combat involved. For this assignment, though, you were sent to an active, aggressive war zone. I want to know what was your reaction when the editor said, hey, pack your bags, you're going to Kiev. Well, you know, I was excited because I really wanted to go last year for the first anniversary, but couldn't. And so I was very happy that, you know, I was told to go on this assignment. But that was late last year when they asked me to go. But, you know, as I was doing this research on the Ukraine war, there were reports, especially in early January, of missile attacks and more bombings Mm -hmm. in the capital, Kiev, where I was planning to go. And and so I suddenly got scared and I was thinking, Yonsuk, do you really want to go there? And there's this one part of me saying, no, I don't want to go. Maybe I should say I don't want to go. While the other part was saying, yes, go. It's your only chance to, you know, to be able to see what's going on in Ukraine. And so finally I decided, yes, I want to go. But I am so happy that I went because it is an experience I will never forget, you know, and I think I must have packed and unpacked, packed and unpacked <laughs> so many times because I was told to travel light because we would be crossing over to the Ukrainian side from Poland on foot because oh. apparently by car, it would take us about 13, 15 hours just to cross the border while on foot, it will take us only about 30 minutes. What? And so we decided to cross over. We, yes, that's how long it takes. And that's how we decided to cross over on foot, but it is winter. And so I had to pack all my winter clothes. And so it wasn't easy trying to pack everything into a very small bag luggage, but eventually everything turned out well and I'm safely back home now. Wow. Okay. So you had to repack your bags a few times. Did you wear a bulletproof vest or, you know, any sort of protective gear when you were gathering footage? Did it feel like a war was happening? Well, uh, we were given this bulletproof vest, myself and my two camera guys, when we were in Lviv, which is the first Ukrainian city that we stopped at. Now, it was my first time wearing them, and wow, they are heavy. I don't know if I would have been able to run wearing them, and luckily I didn't have to find out. Mm -hmm. But while I was in Ukraine, you know, because I was not on the front line or were there any moments when my life was in danger, I didn't have a chance to wear them, although they were with us at all times in the car. Uh, But, you know, having been to two cities in Ukraine, even to the capital, Kyiv, which had been bombed before most of the time, it really is very difficult to tell whether or not I was in a war zone or not. I mean, we keep hearing that it's business as usual most of the time, and it really is. 
the first time I heard the air sirens go off, it was during an interview, but nothing really happened. We just sat through while the air siren was going on and we didn't need to go to the shelters and nobody asked us to go to the shelter, although there was one inside the hotel we were at at that time. So we just waited for it to end and then we just continued with our interview. And also once in the capital of Kiev, early in the morning, I heard this big explosion. Mm. And at first I didn't know what it was. And at first I thought it might be a loud sound of a thunderstorm or something. And I opened up the windows on my curtains and I didn't see anything. It wasn't raining. And then I realized, oh, okay, that must have been an attack somewhere. And it was, it was an attack nearby about 15, 20 minutes away from where we were staying. And we were given notice by the security guys we were with to draw the curtains, stay inside until further notice. And that's what we did. But, you know, during that time, there were really no people out in the streets, but a few cars that were still driving. And so apart from those few times there that I just mentioned, it really was business as usual. And not just for me, but for all the Ukrainians there who are not uh, living close to the border areas with Russia. For those of you who haven't had the pleasure of meeting Yun Suk, uh, she's a very sweet Korean woman. She just wins you over with how oh, friendly no. she is. Why are you laughing? Now, I can picture you, Yun Suk. You're approaching people in Ukraine in your very polite manner. What was reception like? How war-weary did they appear? Teresa, that's so nice of you. But really, I don't think you need to be sweet for the Ukrainians to be kind and nice to you. I mean, they're really wonderful people. And even now, it's really hard to imagine how these people could still be smiling and laughing and really being resilient after all that they've been through the past two years. Because when you meet them, it really is difficult to tell at the beginning if they were sad, angry, or tired from this war. It really is difficult just by looking at their faces. But once you start talking to them, you can see the frustration, the anger against the Russians for attacking them and ruining their lives because this war has definitely changed the lives of the Ukrainians. It's pretty common, right, for a country to rally support for the war effort, uh, calling on ordinary citizens to do their part to support troops who are on the front lines. In America, for example, during World War I, the public was asked to donate to charity or even buy war bonds. So I'm curious, was there any sort of rallying cry like that in Ukraine or was there a sense of fatigue? Well, we didn't see any rallying or anything in Ukraine, but definitely fatigue. I mean, they are tired especially the soldiers we met, and they were saying that they just want to go back home and be reunited with their families. But first, they want victory. And it seems like everyone we met in Ukraine were doing what they could to support this war. And we're not just talking about the brave soldiers fighting on the borders with Russia, but ordinary, average, you know, Ukrainians. For example, we visited one bakery where there were these volunteers making bread for the civilians um, living along the border. And these volunteers all had, you know, some kind of mental disabilities. And yet they wanted to go out and help do their part to fight this war, which they did because they were making like 1,300 loaves of bread every day, four times a week to make sure that the civilians living in areas close to where the fighting was taking place were being fed and had enough supplies to make ends meet. 
Or, for example, we visited one warehouse at night because there were volunteers there who were gathering and going through some of the supplies that they had bought and received through donations. And there were things like medical supplies, generators, and even torchlights. And there were these two young ladies, volunteers for the charity group called Hercit. And when I asked one of them why she was there at night doing this work, this is what she told me. And what she said really represents what Ukrainians are thinking right now. If we will just stay or sit and uh, doing nothing, we will lose. We will lose our country, we will lose our people, we will lose our the closest um, member of, of our family. For example, I have uh, a husband and I have a brother who is on the war and uh, they are soldiers. And it's, it's very dangerous and uh, it's every second uh, risk for his life. So how can I just sit and do nothing? And we've also seen how critical drones have been in this war. Ukraine has even said they're going to create a separate military branch dedicated just to drones. But right now, Ukraine is losing the drone war. They just don't have as many as the Russians do. Yunsuk, one man that you spoke to, has really taken that to heart. And he's actually assembling drones in his home to help soldiers, isn't he? Yes, he is. And I don't think he is the only one. I mean, we met one of them and he was an IT specialist who works full-time for an international company. And in fact, he used to work for the Korean company Samsung in Ukraine. And he was telling me how Samsung's office building was bombed earlier during the war. But being an IT specialist, after work or any spare time he has, he would go to the storage room on the ground floor of his apartment and assemble drones, which are much needed in this Ukrainian military right now. Uh, for about five months, he was saying that he has made about 15 drones and has sent them to the military. And he says that making one drone would cost about 250 to 300 US dollars uh, because he needs to buy the different parts to assemble the drones, which he pays for or sometimes gets donations from friends or other people. He says he can't buy one that's already made because that would cost about 500 US dollars and much more expensive. And as a civilian, he cannot test the drones. And so instead, there are others in the military, like soldiers in this Ukraine volunteer army that we met, and they were testing out the drones before they were being taken out to the battlefield. And apparently the rate is about 70%. But right now, the problem they have is that the Russians are jamming those drones, and that has become a very big problem for the Ukrainians. But even then, there are just so many others like that IT specialist, because drones have really become a war changer in this war. And the Ukrainians, like that IT specialist, Serhiy Stepanchuk, knows that. And let's hear what he had to say. I have a lot of friends who are, who are joining the army. Now they have new need uh, in FPV drones, so uh, I decided that I could do this and help them. So I started to uh, assemble them in my home. Now we have a lot of companies who are producing drones, uh, developing drones in Ukraine, but uh, also it's not enough for our army because Russian, uh, because the enemy has uh, much more drones. And there are also those who want to help more directly. Ukrainian men, you know, between 27 and 60 years old, they can actually be drafted into the military and they're being encouraged to volunteer. Yunsuk, you also went to a recruitment center and you wanted to find out why these men were willing to face such risks. Can you take us through the process? Can anyone without any experience just be shipped off to the front line? 
Well, yes, anyone who wants to go and fight can do so. And most of them don't have any experience at all. I mean, we went to one recruitment center in Lviv, and there was this 19-year-old student who was signing up. And I asked him what he liked, and he said he likes music, and he had no experience in the military. And in fact, you know, he was asking the recruiting officer there if he would be getting some kind of training, because I did ask him if he was scared. He says, yes, a bit. And so he was asking about the military training that he would get, and he was told that he would be getting that. And also, because he was only 19 years old, I asked him if he had parents' consent, and he said, well, he did ask. He didn't need their consent because he is an adult,、mm-hmm. and his parents were against the idea and asked him not to go. But at the end of the day, you know, they said, "Well, it's really your choice," and that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to join the army, and so that's what really happens. They come or they join the army, and for about two to three weeks, they get some kind of military training, and then they're shipped out to the front line. There is a desperate need for soldiers in Ukraine right now. And most of those who volunteered or have been fighting from the beginning of the war two years ago have not returned home yet, and they don't know when they'll be going back. And very likely, you know, when the war is over, because there really is not enough soldiers right now in Ukraine. Separation from a loved one during normal circumstances. Is already difficult enough. I can't imagine during a time of war. Just last month, more than 200 prisoners of war were freed on each side, and you managed to speak to one Ukrainian man who fell into enemy hands and was held for 632 days. His wife, she waited nearly two years to hear his voice again. Can you introduce us to Ostap Rachetnik? Oh, he is such a sweet man. Ostap is 35 years old. Not big, quite small for a Ukrainian. Though he did say that he lost 30 kilograms while he was captured by the Russians. He was a medic in the military, and about two years ago, he and other members in the military were apparently surrounded by the Russians, and so they had no choice but to surrender. And that was the start of this long two years for him in Russia, while his wife had no idea where he was. He is still suffering from some kind of ulcer from an infection that he got on his leg, and was not given any treatment, and so he has this slight limp. But apart from that, he is doing okay. I mean, he does say you know he has problems sleeping, only gets about three hours a day, and also his wife is amazing. You know what? When because of this interview, we got to meet her because she heard that her husband Ostap. Was going to be interviewed, and she wanted to make sure that he looked good on TV. <laughs> so, you know, she brought him a new pair of this black training suit to wear instead of what he was wearing at the rehab center where he has been staying since his release. But they are a lovely couple. So, let's listen to what Ostap says when he describes what it was like being captured by the Russians. We couldn't talk in the cell. We had a wake-up call at 6 a.m. and lights out at 10 p.m. From 6 a.m. to 10 p.m., we stood for 16 hours, not moving, hands behind our backs, heads lowered. If you moved or drank water without permission, they might open the cell door. Either they would take out the person who did it, or the whole cell. Ten times a day, they forced us to sing the Russian anthem and memorize various poems. And some places are obviously more vulnerable than others, Yunsuk. The UN says since this war broke out, about 3.7 million people have been internally displaced, and they describe Ukraine as being the fastest-growing and largest displacement crisis in Europe since the Second World War. Where are all these people going? 
Well, they're going all over Europe. They've been displaced in different cities, but you know, a lot of them, about one million refugees, crossed the border into Poland, and they were welcomed by open arms by the Polish people. I mean, we met a mother and a son, Luda and Jan, who is in Warsaw right now, and they are very happy that they're there and they are safe. Although her husband and her elder son are out fighting on the front line, while they met. They're living with this host who adores them and says that you know they can stay with them as long as they want. There are also lots of other refugees, especially the older ones, who can't find jobs and still need help. And they are getting those help from from the donations and from some of the centers we went. And there was one where we went in, and there were clothes, food, even toys for children. And they were allowed to take anything they wanted, but they had a limit of three per person. And so. The Polish people right now are accepting the Ukrainians there, and Ukrainians are being given the same treatment. They can work like any other Polish people. For the younger ones, it's it's better because the children all get free schooling, like other Polish children. And in fact, you know, one school that we visited made changes to the school system so that the Ukrainian children could feel at home. Like for example, they would recruit Ukrainian teachers to support the main teacher, and so. They would hire a Ukrainian teacher as an assistant teacher, so that she could talk to the children and help the children adapt. And this is what one Ukrainian student told me when I visited that school. At the beginning, it was hard because I didn't speak Polish at all. Later, when I started to learn Polish and improved my language skills, I could talk to my friends and teachers in Polish, and now I feel comfortable. Sounds like incredible effort being put in to integrate these Ukrainians. And in your TV report, you also talk about some Ukrainians wanting to continue their education and actually taking classes online. Okay, let's talk about the economy now. The country Ukraine announced in December almost five percent GDP growth last year, and real GDP is expected to grow by three point six percent this year. How are numbers so promising? I don't get it. Well, you know, it's amazing what the Ukrainians can do, and we're talking about the normal Ukrainians. But also, it's the same for the business owners. Some may have moved out from some of the dangerous areas to the safer ones, and they're running their businesses. Like this one candle、uh, making company that we met, Recover, or some stayed where they were. A tailor-made suit company,、uh, Impulsive, was still in Kiev despite the attacks, and it is making these tailor-made suits for the men there. Now, apparently, at the beginning of the war, demand for some of the so-called luxury goods, like cakes or even those suits that were selling for about two thousand U.S. dollars, fell. There was just nobody asking or wanting those kind of things. But the owner of that tailor-made suit, Katrina, was saying that they have gone up again because people are going back to the way that they have、uh, before the war、uh, broke out, and so. Business owners have had to make changes in between, like this tailor shop that came out with different styles. But business is good, she says.、Um, don't think tourism is going to be picking up very soon. But one thing they all say is that businesses have to continue so that、mm-hmm. the economy is safe in this war, and only then can they recover from this war. And so they may not be out in the front line fighting. But they say they're paying taxes. They have they're paying employees and employees who then pay taxes, and that all is helping this military, the Ukrainian army. And so the business owners are doing their part, are really fighting in the war too, although they may not be out on the front line. I have never been to Ukraine, and I know 
It's your first time as well. As you left Europe, you know, besides thinking about rushing all of these scripts for your reports, what final impressions or thoughts did you have as you made your exit? You know, Teresa, I have covered various stories for years now and for decades, but I must say that this trip was very special. I got to see and also learn a lot about how strong and resilient people can be if you really wanted to. I mean, you're talking about the Ukrainians. They have a war going, and yet they're able to go on with their lives because they say that's the only way they can survive. They can't be at home worrying about what would happen. They just need to go on with their daily lives. And so the Ukrainians are amazing people, and I do hope that the war ends soon so that I can go back because <laughs> I would love to see all those people again. You know, everybody who told me their stories. But also, in a way, I am sad because if this war drags on, then what will become of them? I don't think they will be able to last as long as the Russians can. And I know talking to the Ukrainians, they're going to keep fighting and fighting because all they talk about is victory and they're fighting for their country. But this trip did make me realize that here in Korea, we talk about the possibility of a war breaking out in South and North Korea all the time when we talk about the tensions rising. But I pray it will never happen because I have seen at least a bit from a few days that I've been in Ukraine, what a war can do to both sides. Yeah, hopefully you can visit Ukraine and leave your bulletproof vest out of your suitcase next time. Yunsook, thank you so much. Always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Now make sure you guys catch Yunsook's TV reports as well. She has a great series covering everything from Ukraine's economy to refugees to prisoners of war, pretty much everything we talked about and more. And you can find it all on our CNA YouTube channel and cna.asia. And a reminder that the TV episodes of CNA Correspondent air every Wednesday at 9.30 p.m. The team behind this week's edition is Saya Wynn, Clara Ong, Crispina Robert, Craig Dale, and myself, Teresa Tang. Thanks very much for joining us. <laughs> <laughs>